visiting uh, for a couple days uh, from Canada. I've had the joy of traveling with a good friend of mine, Josh, who's uh, sat up here in the front row as well. He's also from, uh, from Canada. I understand last week, I don't know how many of you were here, but I understand that Matt made a derogatory comment about ice hockey uh, last week, which is our sport in Canada. I don't know about this Frisbee golf thing, but we play ice hockey in Canada. It's quite a rough sport. But I've, I, this week, I've actually been with Matt uh, over in the UK. We had some meetings for three days, and, and, and on one of the evenings, that included going to a local pub and watching the England World Cup football match. I, 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 Matt's telling me not to talk about this, but I've, I've realized why the Brits are so passionate about the royal family, and I realized it that night at the pub. The reason is because if you have the royal family doing their thing and being in the news and all of that, the rest of the world thinks that every British person speaks like that. I was in a pub when England lost that game, and I assure you that not everybody speaks like the Queen. I heard words and phrases strung together that I didn't even think were possible. It was quite an incredible evening that way. But anyway, that, I, I want you to know that your pastor, Matt, did not say anything like that. He was very calm and collected, and at the very end of it, in, in a very keep calm and carry on, on way, he said, well, there's that. And then he walked outside and that was it. So I think he's moved on from that quite quickly. But it's been a great week with him uh, over in the UK and it's just a joy to be here uh, with you guys in Amsterdam. We've been enjoying exploring the city. I bought this shirt yesterday, which is a visual representation of what I see the moment before I cross any street in Amsterdam. All right, just this blur of bicycles, but we're surviving very well uh, so far. Um, my wife sends her love and our two kids, uh, Zara Grace and Joshua Levi, I hope that they and my wife is expecting as well, our third little one in uh, February, I hope that we as a family are going to be able to come back and visit you um, as, as a family sometime. So uh, from, from everybody, including our family, back in Ottawa, Canada, uh, Canada's capital city, and this new church that we've started, we're calling it Grace City Church. We, we love you guys. We're for you guys. We pray for you guys. And uh, actually, our, our morning service is just about to get going over there right now. So I know they're thinking of you guys and praying for you guys this morning as well. Some of you who are new here this morning, maybe this is one of the first few weeks you've been here, you're, you're just trying to understand what this church is about, let alone what it's connected to. If you've got any questions about that, find Matt or Joe or anybody on the team here who's helping out. I know they'll love to tell you a bit more about their story as a church. Well, if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 2. I want to tell you what I want to do uh, with you here this afternoon. I want to give you something of a, of a theological framework for how to see a very relevant issue in not only your city, but our city as well. In fact, many of the major global centers um, around the world. I know many of you woke up this morning thinking, I just, I hope I get to go to church and I'm given a theological framework. That's just what I need this morning. Don't worry, this is gonna be relevant uh, to your life and to mine, but also to the city uh, that you're living in here in Amsterdam and also for us in our city back over in Ottawa. But uh, our, our main scripture text this morning is gonna be Joshua chapter two, verse one to 14. After that, I'm gonna skip ahead in the story and I'm gonna read Joshua chapter six, verse 22 to 25. And those words will come up behind me. If you don't have a Bible with you, just, just keep an eye on the screen here behind me. So this is Joshua chapter two, verse one to 14. I'm gonna read this and then we're gonna to pray together and to see what God would have to say to us uh, this afternoon. So this is Joshua chapter two. 
says this, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and had hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them all the way to the Jordan as far as the fjords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up, dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan in Shihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our lives for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Now we're going to move ahead to chapter 6, verse 22. What happens in between these two sections is that Jericho is defeated and uh, the the, the men bring back this report and then the armies go in and defeat Jericho. It's an incredible story. If you're not familiar with it, do take the time and look into that. But then there's another kind of engagement between Rahab, this prostitute, and these men and the leaders over Israel. So this is now Joshua chapter 6, verse 22, and this is what it says here. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are able to gather this afternoon and that I'm even able to use the word Father with you, God. God, the fact that I can speak to you like that and not just have to come before you in, 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 in uh, trembling in fear as though you are just a distant judge looking to strike me, looking to pass a verdict over me, but I can come boldly before you as a son 
and call you Father. God, thank you. This is only possible because of something that you have done. There's nothing in me, there's nothing in us that makes this possible. This is something that you have done. And thank you that that is that you have sent your son for us, Jesus Christ for us, to take the penalty that we so deserve, to live the life that we never could have lived on our own. And through him, you've made a way not only for our sins to be forgiven, but for us to be adopted into the family of God. God, thank you that your heart for us is for freedom, is for joy, is for peace. That's the heart of any loving parent in this room towards their children. And, and how much more so, God, is that your heart for your children? God, I pray that you'd be speaking by your Holy Spirit to us this afternoon, to everyone in this room, myself included. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Show us more of the love and grace of God revealed to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this for his glory. Amen. Amen. Well, if I may, I'd love to start by telling you a little bit about the city that I come from in uh, Canada. It's called Ottawa. Ottawa, Ontario is the capital city of Canada. And it's a very qualified city. It's a very accomplished city. Ottawa has uh, the highest average education across the country of Canada. It also has the highest average salaries. In Ottawa, I don't know what it's like here in Amsterdam, perhaps in some ways it's similar, but in Ottawa, qualification is king. You can be at a party, you can be out uh, for a drink on a Saturday evening, wherever it is around town, and you don't need to be in conversations with people very long until people are letting you know, even subtly working it in, about their qualifications, about their university degrees, in many cases, many university degrees, or their qualifications with their employment, or where they've been traveling, and the different impressive things that they have been doing. If any of you have spent any time in Canada, maybe you've been to uh, some of the bigger cities like Toronto or Montreal, or maybe even Vancouver, generally people don't come to Ottawa if they're looking for a big party experience. Ottawa, in Ottawa, we like to think ourselves as kind of the mature, you know, older brother, and we kind of go tisk, 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 you know, to Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver. If students are looking for more of a party experience, they're going to go to those cities. If they are coming in with a five or a 10 year plan, of what they want to achieve, what they want to do, the government department they want to work in, the policy job they want to have, then they come to Ottawa. And the thing is, most of them achieve it. Most of them realize it. It's a very high achieving city. Ottawa is a city that likes to think that it has it all together, that it's got everything figured out. Again, I'm not an expert on your city, but perhaps there's some of that here in Amsterdam as well. But the reality back in Ottawa is that we do not have it all together. As much as I love that city and my wife and I and our kids, we've moved there to serve that city with an incredible team that are starting this new church there. As much as we might like to think our city has it all together, it doesn't. There are lots of things that happen in our city that kind of happen in the quiet and that very rarely gets spoken about. Every once in a while, the media will hit on these things. And I'm not pointing the finger at the media. I used to work in media myself. I actually think it's something that's happening across the culture of our city that just kind of refuses to go there. We just want to think that a number of these challenges and a number of these issues don't exist. And let me give you a few examples from some short articles that have been in, in uh, our, our city's newspaper um, even over the past few years. It says this, it says, in April 2009, a 29-year-old woman admitted in a courtroom that she profited from keeping three young women as virtual sex slaves. She was sentenced to seven years. The court heard that the accused recruited the women from local shelters forced one of the young women to freebase cocaine, assaulted and imprisoned two of them. The three victims were teenagers, each of whom worked for 1,000 Canadian dollars to 2,000 Canadian dollars a day to feed their addictions. 
while being driven around in a Cadillac Escalade. Another story says in February 2014, a 24-year-old man was sentenced to six years in prison after being convicted of human trafficking. The court heard that he lured a 17-year-old girl with mental health and learning difficulties into prostitution by first acting as her boyfriend. In November 2014, an 18-year-old woman was sentenced as an adult for her role as the leader of a pimp ring that victimized five young girls, some as young as 13. She received six and a half years for her crime. In April 2017, a 35-year-old man was sentenced to seven months of house arrest for bringing women from China to work in his three Ottawa brothels. The court heard that he brought the women to Ottawa on a visitor's visa, then kept 40% of the money they earned selling sex services in his three properties. He served 10 months in jail. This is in a city that would like to think that we have it all together. This is in a city that would like to think these things happen in other cities. It happens everywhere else, but surely not in our city. Now, when we hear stories like that, and I'm not just talking about those who work in the sex industry, but particularly those who victimize people in the sex industry and profit off of them, often we can think of those people as people who are beyond salvation. We can think of those people, surely those people are the most vile of the vile. Surely the people that are sending underage women in many of these cases into these different areas of, of so-called service and are victimizing them and profiting off them, surely they are the most vile of the vile. They are deserving of massive punishment. We, 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 it shouldn't be like that. And I know the attitude here to a certain degree, again, I'm not an expert on your city as well, if, if, it's, if it's legalized, if it's policed, if it's well guarded, then that does afford some protections. And I'm not saying I agree, but I understand where that comes from. But wherever it is, still there are people who are victimizing others, no matter where you stand on the legislation or on the policies or anything else. Surely the people that victimize us, they're the most wicked. They're the ones who are beyond the salvation of God, surely. And I grew up in a Christian home. I was a youth group kid, I played in a worship band, I went through all of the motions, and I know for a long time in my life I thought this way. I'm one of the good guys, but people like that, they're not. They're not among the good, they're wicked, they're vile. Well, what is it the scripture has to say about this? Is, is that actually biblical thinking? I know not all of you have grown up in Christian homes. Some of you, even this morning, this is your first or second week here, you're just exploring this for the very first time. What does God have to say about this? Does God have the same attitude that we do? Does he approach people like this in the same way that we do? Let's take a look at that together. Let's set the scene for what's going on in, in, in Joshua chapter two here. Some 40 years earlier, God's people, a people who become known as the Israelites, were in slavery. They're in slavery in Egypt. And some of you have seen the films of Prince of Egypt or Exodus, God and Kings, or one of the other films. So you know a little bit about how this story goes. God says to Moses, I wanna free my people from slavery. I want them to be free. I don't want them to be in slavery anymore. And then there are these 10 plagues that come to Egypt. And in every case, Moses goes to Pharaoh. He says, look, God wants his people to be set free. He wants them to go. And Pharaoh initially, yeah, well, no, that's cool. Fine, I, I guess that's all right. But then his heart is hardened and he turns his back on what he says. No, we're gonna keep them in captivity. And every plague keeps mounting and mounting and mounting. But eventually after this final catastrophic one, Pharaoh says, fine, go. And even that, he still chases after them eventually and God miraculously rescues his people again and again and again and again. 
But at this stage, Israel's been wandering in the desert for some 40 years, but where we pick up the story, they're about to cross over the Jordan. They're about to go into the promised land. The thing that is facing them that they need to get through is the city of Jericho, a walled city. I don't know how many of you have visited walled cities in Europe or in other parts of the world, but at that time of history, a walled city was a fortress. You know, now we look at things like economic status and, and perhaps population bases and all these sorts of things. That's well and good. Back then, the walls, the physical walls of a city spoke volumes about the strength of the city. And there's Jericho, this walled city. Now, Israel had been through a lot as leaders had been through a lot over those 40 years. You know, I've, I've heard different scholars talk about this. The 40-year journey that the Israelites were on didn't need really to take 40 years. There were things that God was doing in them. As they went along, I've heard it said that the, the, the journey physically could have been done easily within a year. But how many of you in your relationship with God know that God's timing is very different than ours? And there were things that God was doing in them in the journey. Friends, it's not just about the final destination. God isn't only interested in that. The things that he wants to do in us along the way for our good. So that when we come into many of those promises, we're ready and we're ready to steward them. And that's exactly what he was doing with Israel. And they walked some massive, massive things. One of my favorite stories, it cracks me up every, every time I read this. Moses goes up this mountain to spend time with God, right? He's, he's, he's a ruler. He leaves Aaron, this guy named Aaron, in charge. And when Moses, he has this time with God up the mountain, and he comes down from the mountain, and Aaron and the people are like, where were you? Where were you? We, we didn't really know where you went. Well, I was up, I was up the mountain, just having time with God. What's that, what's that thing over there? Oh yeah, that, that's, a, that's a golden calf. Basically what we did is we, we kind of thought that you and God forgot about us. So we got everybody to take their earrings off and Aaron's trying to make an excuse now. He says, we, we, we took this stuff, we threw it in the fire and it says this in the Bible. Aaron says, and out came a golden calf. This is like a total like biblical facepalm type moment, right? Like that's the best excuse that he could come up with. On top of that, at different occasions, the people that Moses is leading want to kill him. They want to kill him. I mean, I don't know how many of you in the room, many of you are involved in leadership in this church or in, in other churches. I hope you've not experienced that. Matt and Joe, I hope people have not come after you for your head here at Liberty Church. It's a hard job as a leader sometimes. And I want to tell you guys that you have two of the best leaders that Natalia and I have ever known here in this church. Don't come after them for their heads, okay, ever. But that's what happens then in that journey in the desert. It's tough, it's tough going, but finally, they're getting ready to enter into the, promise, or the promised land, and the promises of God, but Jericho is there. So where we've picked up our story, Joshua sends these spies in, and he sends them in, and where do they go? They don't go where we would initially expect. They don't go to the market. They don't go and kind of check out, you know, the different areas where culture is created in different ways, a, a museum or a gallery. Where do they go? They go to the house of a prostitute. They go to Rahab's home. The scripture isn't exactly clear on this, but there are many scholars that actually think that not only was Rahab a prostitute herself, but that she ran the brothel, that she orchestrated it, that she, that she kind of oversaw it and had others who were working for her. We're not certain about that. We are certain that she herself was a prostitute. Now, why is it that Joshua would send these spies as, as their first destination? Off you go, off you go to Jericho, and they go to the house of a prostitute. What in the world is going on there? Well, there's one side of it that's actually quite strategic. 
So I've been going around uh, Amsterdam over the past couple of days. You have so many cafes in the city. And if you were to imagine that Amsterdam was a much smaller city and only had one cafe, where would you go in the city to really learn the culture and to even just keep your ears open to what's happening in the culture and the city around you? Well, you'd, you'd go to a cafe. I know that obviously the size of Amsterdam now with hundreds, perhaps even thousands of cafes, it'd be hard to do that. But back then, in that day, you wouldn't go to a cafe, of course, because they didn't have the same cafe caffeine addiction that I have and half of you have, in that case, you would go to a brothel. You would go to a house of prostitution because the major players in the city, that's where they would go for the services of the brothel. And you would go there with your ears open. You'd hear people talking about the health of the city, about the economic health of the city, about different things and maybe the armies were planning and all of this sort of information. That's where you would go. But there's another side of this as well. It's not just strategic in the way that we might think of it. These men are sent ultimately by God to the house of a prostitute because God is wanting to make it explicitly clear that there is nobody who is beyond his grace. No one. God is wanting to make it explicitly clear that he is able to use anybody to achieve his purposes for his glory, even a prostitute. Well, surely they should go in and they should find somebody of noble standing, somebody who's, who's upright and righteous. God says, no, I want to I make this point very, very clear. My grace, my salvation is for all, is for all, even the ones that we may think of as the most vile of the vile or the lowest of the low. Now, Rahab's name is recorded in, in Hebrews chapter 11 in kind of this, this list, this hall of fame of faith. And some phenomenal people are, are, are listed along there. But then we come along and we see Rahab's name in there. We kind of wonder, well, why in the world is Rahab's name listed among this list of some of the, the, the patriarchs, you know, the, the greatest leaders over Israel? And we're reading this list and we, Rahab? Let's see. I mean, David, I get, Moses. I mean, Abraham, the father of the, yeah, we understand why they're on the list. But, but, but Rahab? Why is that? Well, the reason that Rahab is listed in there is because of something that she says in Joshua chapter 2. I don't know if you caught it as I was reading it a little bit earlier. There are two key things that Rahab says when she's in conversation with these spies. The first is this. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know that the Lord has given you the land. And the second thing she says is this. She says, for the Lord, your God, he is God in heavens above and on the earth below. Do you hear the faith in this woman? Words like, no, I know, I know that the Lord has given you the land. The Lord, your God, he is the God in the heavens and in the earth below. Why is Rahab listed in that hall of fame of faith in Hebrews is because she is an incredible woman of faith. I might be left here thinking, well, how, how, do, how do we define that? Christians love that word, faith. Well, Scripture defines it in Hebrews 11, verse 1, very, very clearly. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, friends, I'm going to be honest with you. I've, 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 I've been a Christian for quite a long time. I'm, I'm 36. I grew up in a Christian home. I, as I said, I, I can do the song and dance among the most of them among the best of them. But there've been many times in my life when I've lacked faith, when I've thought, God, you know what? I know, I know better than you. I know a better way. You know what? Even since I've started a church in Canada, you know what? I still think that sometimes. 
I still think, you know what, God, I, I, don't, I don't need to seek you on this. I just know, I know, I, 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 know, I know the best way. Or when God is kind of urging caution or just patience on things, like, no, 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 surely, surely we can just act in this. Why is that? Because I don't feel a sense of assurance at times for things that I'm not able to see. I look around me, the things that I see in front of me, surely I just, I need to base it off that. That's what God is doing. Well, no, that's, that's, that's not faith. It's not faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let me give you the best example of it from this story. Again, it's exactly what we hear Rahab saying. For I know that the Lord has given. Listen to the future tense of that word. It, it, it hadn't, in the physical, it hadn't happened yet. For I know the Lord has given you the land. She's talking about something that, that, that is going to happen in the future, but she's talking about it in a present tense. Like it's already kind of, it's, it's a fact. This, this is good. We can take this to the bank. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens and God on the earth beneath. She was from a culture that didn't even serve the same God. Still, there's a recognition on her part. It's an incredible statement of faith. This is the type of faith that Rahab is declaring, an assurance of things hoped for, but without the evidence that we might try to look for around us. Now, I, I want to ask you guys a question here. Again, this, this may be in some ways more applicable to those who've grown up in a church setting, but even if you haven't, surely you've heard of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, some of you maybe at times have gone to church around Christmas or gone to a mass or whatever it may be. And we hear at Christmas a lot of talk about Mary, the mother of of Jesus. And we know that the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, this teenage girl, you, you are going to be with child. She's like, I'm gonna be with child. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not even married. I'm not even sexually active. Like, how, how is that even gonna work? And this angel speaks to her. And how does Mary respond? She responds with something called the Magnificent. This song leaps out of her heart and she starts by saying, my soul doth magnify the Lord. And then all these years later, we read that and we love it. There's something about that. This teenage girl so filled with faith, listen to her. My soul doth magnify the Lord. Let's, let's, let, let's call it something Latin because that's just gonna make it sound awesome. So we call it the Magnificent and all around the world, churches uh, read this out or sing it themselves every year at Christmas. And we praise her, we put her in stained glass windows and we do all of these things. Well, what is it that she's showing? She's showing faith. What would happen if we took Rahab's words and we put them to song? What would happen around Christian churches? Which song would get more attention? It's gonna be the song of Mary, the mother of Jesus, not the song of Rahab, the prostitute. I did a Google search a while ago on stained glass windows, Mary. And for every 83 results I found, I found one for Rahab. Why is that? How are both these women saved? How do they both enter into God's family? For both of them, it is by faith. For Mary, the mother of Jesus, and for Rahab, the prostitute. They both come into the plans and purposes of God and the family of God by faith. Rahab wasn't part of the family of God. She's part of the city of Jericho. But as we kept reading, as we moved on to the other chapter in chapter six, we see that she becomes part of Israel. She is brought right in. How? She's a prostitute. She's no Mary. My goodness, Mary, the mother of this teenage girl carrying Jesus in her womb. Surely we get that. God says, it's not about that. 
It's not about that. It's by faith. Listen to her faith. So often we live under the false notion that God will only save those who are perfect, you know, who are righteous, who, who kind of tick all of the ethical and moral boxes. The thing is, it's the funny thing is we're actually half right. <laughs> we're actually half right. See, the Bible does talk about those who are able to enter into the family of God and enjoy relationship with God for all of eternity. You know what? The people that are able to do that are the people who are considered and counted as the righteous. So in that aspect, it's true. But here's the thing is there's nothing that we can do ourselves to make us righteous. And believe me, I've got, I've got 20 some years of trying as hard as I could until I, I, I clocked this, I realized it. I grew up in a very legalistic environment in, in Eastern Canada. What I mean by that is a Christian environment, yes, but a private Christian school and to a large degree a Christian church that told me that good Christian kids do this, this, and this, and they don't do that, that, and that. That's how I live my life. I remember being at a Christian school. I remember I was probably 12, 13 years old, curious about girls, curious about sex, putting my hand up saying, I, I've just got a couple questions. No, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about that here. So as soon as I was 15 or 16 and was of an age where I was able to step away from a sort of parental authority or authority from teachers at the Christian school, what did I do? I do what most people do that have law shoved down their throat as I gravitated to all of the things that I was told I could not do. I ran at them with everything I had. And for many people around me, they were running to things like drugs and alcohol. For me, it was porn. For me, it was sexually, it was all the stuff that I was told, no, good Christian kids don't do this. And I'm thinking, well, I've got so many questions. There's so much that I just don't know. And for the answers to satisfy my curiosity, I went into something that was a dark, dark trail of addiction, of horribly painful conversations with a woman who would later become my wife. I remember being with her and having this conversation with her thinking, I, she's gonna walk away from me right now. I, and I wouldn't blame her at all, given some of the things that I've walked. I'm still trying to work out. It's still a thing that we're working out. There's still effects of that still where we're having to have conversations about this. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for his grace. Because God's choosing of me and me entering into the plans and purposes of God and the family of God is not based on my performance. It's not based on the ways that I've gotten it right or wrong. The good Christian youth group kid in Eastern Canada or the bad Christian kid who looked at porn. God goes rich. We can talk about that stuff. I want what's good for you. I'm not trying to give you the impression God doesn't care. He does care. But at no point is he saying, that's your way in. It's the righteousness of Christ. It's not the righteousness of rich. It's not the righteousness of you. Because if it is, we don't stand a chance. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, the perfect Joshua, the perfect one who goes and who spies out the land. He lives 33 years. He spends three years in ministry, walking around, learning the culture, speaking to the culture. All of this on his way ultimately to the cross, goes to the cross in your place and in mine. And on that cross, he takes on the punishment for the sin that you deserve and that I deserve. And if we fall into the trap, friends, you must hear this, if we fall into the trap of comparing ourselves to the people beside us, whether it be in this room or our neighbors or in our extended city, we might come to the conclusion that we're pretty good people. God is not making the same comparison. 
The only comparison that God is interested in is the comparison between you and him. And I don't care who you are in this room, the gap there is immeasurable. How is it filled? What's our way in? We need to be declared as righteous, to enjoy a relationship with God for all of eternity and be counted as sons or daughters of God. The penalty for our sin needs to be paid. And Jesus Christ on the cross paid for our sin. And who is that available to? It's to those who receive him by what? You guessed it, by faith. Not by trying to keep all the rules, not by trying to do everything right, by faith. Does living a life that is holy and and living a righteous life, does that matter? It does matter, but it probably doesn't matter for the reason you think it does. It matters because it's an overflow of love, it's an expression of of our love towards God. Why, what this God has done for me in Jesus Christ, why would I wanna live that old way? Why would I wanna return to that? Look at what he's done for me in Christ. How could I possibly return to that? But friends, you know what? Some of you right now are thinking of ways in your mind right now, as Christians in the room, of ways that you have returned to that. There's grace for you. There's grace for you. In a little bit, when we go to the tables, when we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross, his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. Come, run if you need to. And remember the place where your salvation was won. Jesus has done it all for us. We've been talking a bit about prostitutes this afternoon. If still you are left thinking, Well, still, there's something different about that industry, about those people. Maybe as you're going about life in Amsterdam, maybe these thoughts come into your mind. I wanna give you some bad news. Spiritually speaking, we are the prostitutes. That's the way the Bible talks about us. This is the way the Bible talks about the people of God in many different sections through scripture. We see this in 2 Kings in Proverbs 7 and Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16. But I want to focus in, as I draw to a close, on Hosea. This is a prophet who God literally said to, I want you to go and marry a prostitute. Because I want you to see something of what my people are doing to me. And as we read through Hosea, we read about the people of God using things that God had given them to pursue other gods to pursue other idols, to literally, to prostitute themselves out to others. So I was preaching this in our church back in Ottawa a while ago. I I was very aware as I was preaching it that there were some people in the room that were able to relate to that because they had stories of giving like cell phones, mobile phones to a spouse or to a boyfriend or to a girlfriend or a car or something like that. And those devices being used to cheat on them. This is what we have done with God. This is what Israel has done with God. If you're in that situation and you're a husband, men in the room, if you're a husband, how do you respond to that? Maybe some of you, uh, I don't say this lightly, maybe this is hitting very close to home because of your story, I don't know all of you. But how would you respond to that? Women in the room, how would you respond to that? I know how I would. I would be furious. I'd wanna get even. I'd want vengeance. Let's read about how God responds. In Hosea chapter two, he says this. This is his response to the unfaithfulness of his people. And friends, if you have been unfaithful towards God, pursuing other things, this is how God responds to you. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. 
and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth and at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, my false god. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beast of the field and the birds of the heaven and the creeping things in the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. How in the world is this possible? How in the world could God respond to unfaithful Israel and to unfaithful you and me like this? It's only possible if there's a remedy for our sin. It's only possible if there's a remedy for our sin. It's only possible if somehow we are justified, we are made righteous. It's only possible through Christ. Friends, know the grace of God this morning. Whatever your story is of this, whatever your experience is of this, whatever may be rocking your family right now in this, maybe for you, your own personal experience has not been of this, but there have been others in your family, know that there is none who are beyond the grace of God. Not a single one beyond the grace of God. Trust him, trust him, trust our good God, trust Jesus as our perfect husband. His grace is sufficient. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your tender care of us. Father, we thank you that you are not a husband like, like we are for the husbands in the room. You're not a spouse like we are. You're full of grace, you're full of compassion, you're full of tender mercy. And God, I thank you that that means hope for Amsterdam, that means hope for Ottawa. God, we recognize in these cities that there are many, there are thousands, millions perhaps, who have either not considered you or have given up on you because they think surely there's just, there's just no way, there's just no point. I just can't do it, I can't live like that. Father, forgive us for the Christians in the room. Forgive us for the times when we think that we're better. Forgive us for the times when we think that we deserve it more. We deserve your grace more. God, we don't. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him to the cross in our place. Jesus, thank you for going to that place on our behalf, for living the life that we never could have lived, for dying the death that we deserved, and for extending grace and hope and peace and an invitation to become part of the family of God to all who should receive it by faith. God, thank you. Thank you that that's my story, that's Matt and Joe's story, it's the story of many around this room. God, I lift any of this room before you who have counted themselves out, who have thought, no, my, my story, I just can't, I, I need to go to church a number of times, I gotta make myself right, I've gotta scrub myself up. Holy Spirit, be speaking to those people right now, I pray. Pray they would know the gospel. Pray that they would know and that we would all would know that this is about what Jesus has done, about who he is. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. In a few minutes, we remember the sacrifice that you made for us as we take the bread and the wine. Jesus, thank you. 
We love you. We glorify you. Amen. Amen.